It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all of his acquaintances and the woman who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. scripture that was read from Luke chapter 23, at the end it says that Jesus breathed his last. The Jewish Messiah, the, the king, was dead. His disciples that had followed him were, were scattered, in, afraid that the same fate would befall them. One of his disciples, John, was at the foot of the cross, but he must have looked up at Jesus with horror. His Messiah was dead. 
And they were full of disappointment. The disciples of Jesus were full of disappointment in this moment. And it's because that as they looked at the Old Testament scriptures, the promise of God was that God would send a Messiah, a a promised king that would come to restore Israel. And and their hopes were dashed. And and they remembered that Peter himself said and proclaimed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, And Jesus himself affirmed that truth. And even some of the disciples, they had followed Jesus ever since his baptism. And they they heard the voice of the Father say, this is my beloved Son, and with him I am well pleased. And just actually five days ago, they they walked into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. They proclaimed Jesus as king. And yet now, five days later, here is their king, dead, hung on a cross, executed as a Roman criminal. Here's a question, though, is were the disciples to be as disappointed as they were? Or was there something happening that was not just a tragedy? Was there something happening deeper that was profound, something mysterious, something possibly even glorious? Stay. 
the formal ministry of Jesus began at his baptism. Soon after his baptism, Jesus began with this message that the kingdom of God is at hand. But again, at the cross on this Good Friday, it seemed that this kingdom came to a halting stop. But Paul, often in his writings, would, would write about the mystery of the gospel, that there was something hidden, something not understood about Jesus and his kingdom that would only be fully revealed later after his death and resurrection. But here's the thing, like any good mystery novel that you might read to the very end, you realize that as you've come to the end that, ah, there were, there were clues littered all throughout the book that, that you missed. In the same way that throughout the Bible and then even in the ministry of Jesus and even specifically in his baptism, there were mystery clues uh, that even his disciples were missing. Now, if you read a, ever read a children's Bible and you see a, a picture of Jesus' baptism, it's, it's a beautiful scene. Uh, there's the clean, crisp waters that are dripping off of Jesus, that the heavens are opened. Uh, the spirit descends like a dove upon Jesus. Uh, but if we look and think more closely, that we see that there are mystery clues of the cross, even in the baptism of Jesus. You know, uh, if, if we think about John the Baptist, he was calling Israel to a baptism of repentance, uh, repentance of their sins. But then Jesus shows up and he wants to be baptized. And John the Baptist says, no, I, I'm not supposed to baptize you. You're supposed to baptize me. But then Jesus says this in Matthew 3, 15. He says, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. So here's the question. What, what was fitting and righteous about sinless Jesus being baptized. Jesus had no sin to repent of. He had no sins to be cleansed of. But Jesus being baptized was not because he was a sinner, but because he was identifying with sinners. See, one of the ideas of the baptismal waters is, yes, that, that, that it is about the cleansing of our sins, but another picture of water in the scripture is that it pictures the flooding waters of judgment. Think about in scripture when God brought a flood upon the world filled with wickedness in the, the days of Noah. Think about Israel crossing the Red Sea and, and the waters of judgment coming upon their, uh, their Egyptian slave masters. Uh, think about Jonah, the Jewish prophet, who was thrown into the sea because he was running from his calling because he, he hated his enemies. And so we see that even in Jesus' baptism, there, there's a mystery that we often miss, that we, we assume to be only just a happy scene, that simultaneously it is enacting an awful scene of judgment. And so, so the parable that was, that was happening in Jesus' baptism, this parable of judgment, three, day, three years later on Good Friday, that, that parable is now a reality. And yet, God, because of the horror of sin being so great in the New Testament, he actually changes the metaphor of judgment from water to fire to show even more clearly how egregious and heinous sin really is. And so on the cross, Jesus Christ is experiencing the judgment of God being drowned in the waters of judgment and also incinerated in the fires of God's anger towards sin. This is the unveiled mystery of the cross. But this is not just a distant story, but this is our story. Because the truth is, if, if God were to treat you and I as our sins deserve, the full wrath of God's drowning judgment, 
and the fires of his eternal wrath should fall upon us for our sins, our sins of immorality and of greed and of anger that we've committed. But even if our sins may be here, not, not so external, our internal hearts are just as corrupt. Outwardly, we may appear to be moral, but inwardly, we, we desire the praise of, of men. Uh, we live as people that are, that are critical and self-righteous, not realizing the corruption that's in our own hearts. And yet, here, here's the truth, is that God sees what men do not see. Uh, God sees all of our sins, and he is disgusted and offended by it. And, and the scripture says this, that it is fitting. It is fitting and right that God would bring his judgment upon us. But in the mystery of the cross, we can say in some sense that there is a deeper magic, as Aslan says in the Chronicles of Narnia. The deeper magic is this, that that there is something even more fitting to the heart of God than his anger towards sin. And it's that his heart of love towards sinners. You see, the, the heart of God was so moved with love that he would have the waters of judgment and the fires of wrath fall upon his one and only son instead of us. And as we are united to Christ in his death, it means that all of God's displeasure towards our sin has also died, that there is not a single flame of anger, not a single drop of water, not one ounce of displeasure that remains in the heart of God towards us. So I was thinking about this, I was thinking about a few years ago, my daughter, uh, her name is Joy. She was around three or four years old. I remember being at uh, my parents' house. We were visiting my parents and it was the morning time. It was time for her to brush her teeth. And, uh, and so, you know, we're, we're looking for her and uh, we can find her. So we said, you know, Joy, you know, where are you? It's time to brush your teeth. And uh, we're looking around, we can't find her. Um, you know, we're not too worried at first. Uh, but a few minutes pass, we still can't find her. We're, we're starting to get a little bit worried. We start talking louder, Joy, where are you? And uh, she's nowhere to be found. Uh, minutes are passing we're, and we're starting to get frantic now. We're, we're, we're starting to, to yell her name and trying to find her. We open the garage, trying to see, does she go outside? We're thinking maybe we should start to call the police. Uh, several minutes pass, we're, we're searching frantically. I decide to go behind a couch and look behind a couch, and I see my daughter Joy sitting there behind the couch. And I was just so relieved. And yet I wondered why she didn't respond to me, and I noticed that she was holding a toothbrush. And she was holding his toothbrush, and, and, I, and I tried to get it out of her hand, but she kept resisting, uh, letting the toothbrush go. And I, and, I, and, I, and I finally yanked it out of her hand, and I realized that the toothbrush was broken. And in that moment, my heart just sank because I realized she was hiding because she had broken her toothbrush. In that moment, I picked up my daughter, Joy, and I, and I looked her in the eye and said, Joy, I want you to know something, that Daddy and Mommy were so scared that we lost you. And we know that you're sad that you broke your toothbrush. We want you to know something that you never need to be afraid to come to daddy and mommy, no matter what you've broken. Mommy and daddy will always, always love you. And I think about that and I think of how much we are like joy, my daughter, in our Christian life. We have tons of broken toothbrushes in our life, don't we? But the gospel reminds us that as we're united in his death, that all of our sins have been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, no amount of broken toothbrushes in our life can remove 
his love for us. So as we enter into time uh, to sing, to worship, uh, we'll remain seated, but let's sing to the Lord. And as we're here, whether we're here or maybe we're at home, you know, maybe some of us uh, have not yet trusted and believed this message. We encourage you to still sing. But our hope is that as you sing with your lips, that something will happen in your heart that you would come to believe the gospel maybe for the first time in your life. That there is a God who forgives all of my mistakes, all my brokenness, that he wipes it away clean in the cross. But those of us who are believers, who are followers of Jesus, that we would remember, we would rejoice uh, that there's a God who redeems and forgives all of my brokenness. He cleanses all of my sins. Let's sing to the Lord.
man of sorrows, lamb of God, by his own betrayed, the sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus' light. We sang in that first verse of that song one of the greatest gifts that God has ever bestowed on man. As Tony just preached to us, when Jesus died, he stood under the waters of God's judgment in our place and for our sins, so that our sins could be cast from us as far as the east is from the west, and there is no greater reality that we could possibly know or embrace, and it is one that God has given us wholly and completely in Jesus, and yet, if that is all that we have received in Christ, cleansing from our sin and nothing more, then what we have believed is ultimately an impoverished and hopeless gospel. Because Jesus has left us in an even worse position than Adam. When God spoke to Adam and Eve in the garden, he told them that the consequences of sin would be death. But he also communicated to them this, the condition for eternal life for Adam and for his posterity, for us, it was perfect obedience. If all Jesus has done is cleanse us from our sins and give us a second chance, then whatever hope we have, it is a slim one indeed. Because what makes us think that we, as sinful people living in a fallen world, what makes us think that we will stand where Adam, a perfect man in a perfect world, what makes us think we'll stand where he fell? You know, if my hope of eternal life depends on my perfect obedience, then I lost my hope a long time ago and I lose it every single day. Because I stumble in my actions, I stumble in my words, I stumble in my thoughts, I stumble in my affections. I stumbled last night trying to put my kids to bed because I didn't want to go to sleep. Even in my absolutely best moments where I think I am doing everything I can to love the world, Lord, even there, even there, those best actions are always stained by sin. That's not just true of me. That is every single person of this room, if you were a believer and even if you were not, especially if you were not. If we wanna have hope of eternal life, we need something more. If we wanna have hope, sure hope, that that life is ours, that the Father looks at us with anything remotely resembling pleasure. We don't just need someone to suffer and pay sin's penalty. We need a second Adam to fulfill God's condition. We don't just need someone who will suffer for us. We need someone who will obey for us. And I want us to hear this because this is the piece of the gospel that I think we far too often neglect and are far too quick to forget. That is what we are offered in Jesus. When Jesus waded into the waters of the Jordan, 
to be baptized by John, it wasn't just to announce himself as the one who would endure the waters of judgment on our behalf. It was to announce himself, as he says in Matthew 3, verse 15, as the one who has come to fulfill all righteousness. And once that one piece slips into place, suddenly the entirety of Jesus' life, everything that he did on earth, suddenly it begins to take on new significance, doesn't it? Because if all we needed was a sinless sacrifice for sin, then why did God go to so much trouble to make sure that Herod didn't kill Jesus as an infant? Why did Jesus go into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? Why did Jesus suffer the indignity of adolescence with all of its hormones and pimples and zits? Why did Jesus spend 30 years toiling in obscurity as a carpenter in a backwater town where no one thought anything was special about him and only three years in public ministry before he died. None of that makes a lot of sense unless you realize this. Jesus didn't come just to die. He came to live and live for you and for me. Jesus, Jesus is the one who overcame temptation where we and Adam did not. Jesus is the one who fulfilled the law where we and Adam did not. Jesus is the one who loved the Lord his God with all his heart and his soul and his mind and his strength where we and Adam did not. And Jesus, Jesus is the one who loved his neighbor as himself and even more than that, laid down his life for his neighbor where we and Adam have not. In the life of Jesus, there is not a hint, not a whiff of sin. It is the perfect, infinite righteousness of God embodied in human flesh and walking the dusty streets of this world. And the glorious, gracious gift of the gospel is that righteousness in all of its infinite perfection, that is what we receive when we are united to Jesus by faith. So much so that when the Father looks at those who are joined with Jesus, he doesn't see prodigals who stray daily. He sees the Son who, as Hebrews 12 tells us, in his struggle against sin, resisted to the point of shedding blood. When he looks at us, he doesn't see those people who are prone to wonder and Lord, they feel it. He sees those who joyously, zealously, with all their hearts and souls and minds and strength obeyed him even to the point of death. Why? Because he has not papered over our lives with some sort of legal fiction. 
But God has joined us to Jesus in such an intimate union that we can say with full confidence that we are in him and he is in us. And if that's true, then the pleasure of the Father that overflowed for Jesus at his baptism where he said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That is a pleasure that now overflows for you and for me both now and into eternity. It's what made J. Gresham Machen in the last words that he wrote to his friend John Murray say, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. There is no hope without it. And it's what made John Henry Newman sing, O loving wisdom of our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came, O wisest love that flesh and blood which did in Adam fail, should strive afresh against the foe, should strive and should prevail. May our hearts rejoice and may they sing the same. Amen.
those clothed with righteousness divine. Let's go before our Father with the boldness that that gives us as those who know that we are not only forgiven, but we are now righteous in the sight of God because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. Let's read this confession together. We'll do it corporately, and then we'll pray privately. Gracious Father, this Good Friday we confess that your son's cross should have been our own. Together. We were brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did our mothers conceive us. Our hearts were inclined to all evil and slow to all good, given to transgressing your holy commandments without ceasing and corrupting ourselves more and more. The waters of judgment that fell on your son should have fallen on us. And yet, Lord, If we are forgiven only, we have no hope. We need more. Even now as your children, born again from above, we confess that our obedience is never more than half-hearted, our affection half full. Even our best acts of service suffer from sin's pollution. If the condition for eternal life is perfect obedience, then on our own we confess we deserve not life, but death. We see it and we are sorry. Please give us your grace and help. Have mercy on us, most gracious and merciful God and Father. We need more than a new start. We need a new life where we have trusted in ourselves. Forgive us and by your spirit, bring our hearts to rest only and always in our union with your son. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's spend a few moments in silent confession.
in his last moments on the cross, Jesus said three words. It is finished. In his passive obedience, he bore in his body the judgment of God that we deserved. And in his active obedience, he fulfilled the condition that we never could. In him, we have forgiveness today. In him, we have hope of eternal life that nothing can ever pluck from our hands because it is secured by God himself. And in him, we have the pleasure of a father who looks at us and says, you are my children with whom I am well pleased. Because when Jesus said, it is finished, he meant it. But on that day, 2,000 years ago, as the disciples watched Jesus breathe his last from afar, they did not yet understand. Let's stand. And as those who, unlike the disciples, understand what it is that Jesus did, let's respond to his mercy with grateful hearts. Let's worship. Yeah, man. 
Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. <laughs> 